We are on lesson number 132 in the book of Genesis. And uh, this is our uh, presumably our last one. Um, as uh, Peggy was pointing out last week, we started our uh, study of Genesis on our, yeah, our study of Genesis, I think it was on May. 24th of 2009, so almost exactly three years. How, how many of you here were here at the beginning when we started Genesis? Oh, great, good. Well, we don't have as high a turnover as I thought we did. But, well, I didn't scare you all off apparently. We made it. We made it to the end. And I was thinking. I've been thinking lately. Before we did Genesis, we did that uh, about a two or three month study in a section of Exodus on the Mount Mites on Mount. On Mount Sinai and the experience at Mount Sinai, and before that we did the Gospel of Luke. So we've actually been doing narrative studies. We've been doing studies of history sections of Scripture for about five years. <laughs> so uh, uh, this uh, study in Romans will be a, a change from what we've been doing for quite some time as we go back into the epistles again. But. Uh, but of course, as I mentioned, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm expecting that that's going to be a great time too. But uh, last week we were in chapter 50, uh, and we were looking at kind of these last, the last story, uh, beginning in uh, uh, beginning there where Joseph's brothers uh, bury their father, and and then they become concerned about Joseph having this. Uh, bitterness or this residual determination to take his revenge on his brothers and so they send the message in, uh, to him and uh, and ask him to forgive them. They kind of uh, depends on whether you think they were actually telling the truth in the message or not but uh, uh, they either are putting words in their father's mouth or they're referring to their father as a reason for Joseph to Forgive them, and that's the part of the story we looked at last week. And usually, in a lesson at this point, we we take some time to review the last week's lesson. But I'm going to expand it today. So uh, this is your opportunity to think back over the last three years <laughs> and the entire book of Genesis. And uh, and I'm just curious if any of you have any particular things, either from last week's study that you want to mention, as we usually do. Or do you have anything particular that stuck out to you, something that was memorable or something that was meaningful or something that was particularly instructive to you uh, or some part of Genesis that you particularly like to think about? Uh, so this is your chance to share those things before we finish these last few verses and, and kind of do an overview of Genesis. So what do you remember? What sticks out in your mind from the book of Genesis? One thing that sticks out to me is something you said that I've never thought of. Abraham ran and met of the Lord and an angel, and uh, they came and he had Sarah Christian Uh huh. And the question you asked was, have you ever wondered what the Lord says to the angels about their conversation? Abraham knows because he stood by the table. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Isn't that fun? We'll get a chance to do that someday, won't we, Ron? We can sit down and listen to God's conversation with the angels. Yeah. Well, that's going back a long time, if you remember that. 
<laughs> yeah. And that was incidentally just to kind of help put things, hang things on hangers, so we kind of know where things are. That was uh, right before the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah incident. Uh, that was uh, when Abraham was living at Mamre, and at the by the Oaks of Mamre, and uh, and the Lord came by, and that's when He uh, told Sarah she was going to have a baby in a year, and and was also uh, the the. Uh, the point where he told him what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. So that was a scenario, and they sat down and had dinner together, and the Lord and the angels and Abraham all had dinner together. Abraham had no idea that that angel was a specialist. Yeah. He was going to destroy Sodom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty awesome, yeah. I noticed that the end is not justified or the means. It's just God's care and loving. I mean, they did so many things that you think the end did not. God just blessed them in spite of yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's an encouragement to me. Yeah. And I guess that God can still bless us, but it doesn't mean that it was a blessing. Exactly, yeah. And and we see that all the way through the book, don't we? We see it all, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. But we see that all the way through the book. Classic example is Abraham goes down to Egypt and tells that lie about his wife and gets in trouble with Pharaoh and everything. And what happens? He comes back filthy rich out of the deal, you know. And you go, Lord, why do you do that? <laughs> but it is encouraging. Yeah, it's encouraging. What else? Yeah, sir. Um, the, the whole question about Jacob on the stuff that was coming in And there's a part of that story, I won't go into it because I don't want to take away from yours, but there's a part of that story that relates very much to my to my last time with my father too. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. 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 Ye
Yeah. Yeah. And you see that all the way then through then from Genesis twelve on, don't you? That that issue of that responsibility to bear a blessing to others, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Gary. Um, one thing stood out to me was for God in creation. He had all these things that he did, but he always created a separation. Uh-huh. Between the light and the dark, mm-hmm. between the earth and the water, between the different kinds of vegetation. And just that God creates a separation in order to provide order. Yeah, yeah. And, and those separations and distinctions are crucial, aren't they? Yeah, and and when we when we ignore those, uh, we do so to our own peril, don't we? Yeah, yeah. The separations and distinctions in creation. Uh, you people impress me. How many things you remember from a long time ago? <laughs> this is good. I did take time uh, this week, uh, Friday and Saturday, to go through all of my notes. Uh, from Genesis. That's over 500 pages of notes that I just scanned down through over uh, Friday evening and Saturday and stuff. And I didn't read every word of them, but uh, my outlines that I that I use here in class. And I went through them all. Uh, and as I was doing it, I was thinking, boy, there's some really neat stuff in this book. <laughs> there's really some wonderful lessons in this book. Anybody else? What else? Put a big emphasis on birth order but God did yeah 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 he keeps juggling things around doesn't he to get them the way he wants them to do things the way he wants to yeah we have our culture and our ways of doing things and God just says sorry I got a different plan yeah really anything else you know, no matter what his situation, he was blessed and obviously had the administration. And the ones around him, no matter where, recognized his gift and his God blessing him and they received blessing. Yeah. 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 It's just another example carrying on that principle of being the blessing bearer, and he's a classic example of that. And when no one could interpret the dream, yeah. he had. No fear or anything, and he gave God the credit. Just, but this is what it means. Just went right in there, didn't he? <laughs> uh, as I told you when we started the story of Joseph, he's really a remarkable guy. Really a remarkable guy. And I, you know, and having spent the months that we spent talking about this story, I'm, I'm even more impressed with what a great man this guy Joseph was. Anyone else? again in the book of Genesis. Absolutely foundational. You know, you just think about 
and from at the very beginning, the whole story of creation, and and uh, and you know there are those who you know uh, the uh, kind of what we call theistic evolutionists, and and there are many believers who are, and uh, you know, and, and good believers, wonderful people who are, but as soon as you embrace that position, then suddenly you've compromised the doctrine of the fall. Adam and Eve, you know, and and, uh, and of course I know some theistic evolutionists who go out of their way to avoid doing that, uh, but to do so they have to make this incredible uh, logical leap from their theory of evolution uh, to the to the sudden appearance of this man and woman, Adam and Eve, but but it's just a foundational book all the way through from the very beginning the doctrine of the fall the story of Abraham uh, the uh, the twelve tribes and the blessings of this all the way through Genesis absolutely foundational stuff which is why one of the reasons why I was eager for us to spend as much time and as much detail in the book as we did okay well let's pick up our story then uh, where we were last week and I'd just like to to talk about a couple more aspects of those closing days in the life of Joseph and uh, and that incident right there after the death of his father. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that and then I would like to take some time and just go back and just kind of walk real quickly through the entire book of Genesis and just kind of put it all in order for us as we as we leave the book to go to another foundational book in all of our theology, and that is the book of Romans, uh, which we will start in a couple weeks. But last week we had, uh, we had the brothers, after the death of their father, become concerned that Joseph may be uh, planning to exact his revenge, and he's just kind of put it all on hold until dad's dead, and now that dad's off the scene, uh, maybe he's going to do this. And so they're concerned that he's going to do it. And we talked in length about that last week. We talked about the issue of of vengeance and revenge. We talked about the issue of forgiveness uh, and what all that involves. Uh, And and so I don't want to I don't want to recover those things. Uh, We got down to about verse 19 in chapter 50. Let's just pick it up and start reading there and we'll read through the last few verses of the book. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I for am I in God's place? And we talked about that last week. And then he goes on to say, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. Excuse me. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also, the sons of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. That's another reference to adopting. He actually apparently adopted uh, Maker's sons. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you 
and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay? Well, as I mentioned last week, we talked about verse 29, we talked about, or verse 19, excuse me, about uh, Joseph making this statement that he is not in the place of God. We talked about how vengeance is something that belongs to the Lord and it's not, it's never our prerogative to uh, engage in vengeance or revenge. We're talking about in personal relationships. We're not talking about civil order here or civil government, but we're talking about in personal relationships and personal wrongs. And it's never our place to exact uh, revenge. And that's, that's the point that Joseph is making. I, I find it interesting that Joseph understands this uh, principle. We see this articulated very clearly by the time we get to the New Testament. Jesus teaches it and Paul teaches it. And so it's very clearly articulated that here we are clear back many, many years ago uh, and kind of back in the beginnings of things. And even back there, Joseph understands that this issue of revenge belongs to God alone. And he says, I'm not in God's place. And then he makes this classic statement, which is in some ways a summary of the whole book of Genesis. You meant evil against me, he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to keep or preserve many people alive. And um, this, of course, is a principle that Joseph had alluded to earlier when, when he first disclosed who he was to his brothers uh, there uh, many years ago, 17 years earlier, and he disclosed that, it was, that they were dealing with Joseph here. And, of course, they were terrified. And at that point, he had said to them, he said, uh, he said don't, uh, uh, basically, he said, don't whip yourselves for what you did. He said, uh, you did not send me here, but God sent me here. And that's the way he articulated it 17 years earlier. Here, he says it in a little different way, but it's the same principle uh, that's at work here. And, and I kind of like the literal translation of this, okay? Uh, literally, uh, literally, it, it kind of reads this way. It says, you were meditating or thinking evil against me. But God was meditating and thinking good. And so you get this picture that, you know, that, that kind of that classic uh, 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 watershed event there at Gotham when Joseph is coming to, to, uh, to check on his brothers and they're there at Gotham with the livestock and he's coming from a distance and they look and they see him coming and, and we get this story there in Genesis 37 about them plotting this evil against him. And so you see this picture that they're actually thinking and meditating, contemplating and discussing what kind of evil they can do to their brother, to their little brother Joseph. And so they're actually sitting there and they're thinking about evil and they're thinking about killing him and they're thinking about taking his garment back to dad and lying to their dad. And they're thinking about throwing him in the pit and they're thinking about dragging him out of the pit and selling. And there are all these evil thoughts that they're thinking about doing to Joseph. But all the while they're thinking these evil thoughts about what they are going to do to Joseph. God is also thinking and what is God thinking? Down 
He's thinking good thoughts. He's thinking... And, and you'll notice how it says it here in verse 20. He says, uh, And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What is the it it's referring to? The harm. Okay? So it's not just that the brothers were thinking evil and God was thinking some good thoughts over here and the good thoughts were going to win out. But actually, it's that the God, while these guys were thinking up and conjuring up this evil, God is over here. The sovereign creator God of the universe is over here. And He's thinking how He's going to take this thing that these guys are thinking and He's going to turn it into good to accomplish this present result, which is the preservation of many lives. That's pretty awesome. And that really is the story of Genesis, isn't it? How God has, from the very beginning, when, when the serpent was there in the garden and he was enticing Eve and saying, half God said, and he had all these evil thoughts and Eve started to think these evil thoughts about God and started to think all this evil stuff and then enticed her husband and he believed and, and he went along with it and, and became a part of it and, 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 and all the evil that was happening right there in the garden. While all of that was happening, what was God doing? He was contemplating how he would turn that very evil into the preservation of many lives. And the whole story of Genesis then unfolds that for us, doesn't it? So we have this remarkable perspective of Joseph that he understands how God not only triumphs over evil, but actually transforms evil into something that's good. And uh, and as I was thinking about that this morning, uh, as I was getting up and getting ready to study, and I was kind of meditating on that, and I was thinking about that, I was thinking, when did Joseph get this perspective? When did Joseph get the perspective that that God was going to, or God used this evil, or was going to use this evil, or was thinking how he was going to use this evil? For good. My guess would be when he was promoted to governor of Egypt or Okay. So your suggestion is that once he saw the evidence, then he knew. He he may have suspected, but he wondering what God was doing. And it wasn't until that moment maybe that he was like, Okay, now I know. Okay. Now what I would suggest is that it's at that point that he begins to understand how God is going to do it. But my question is, when did he believe that that's what God does about evil? Yeah. And how do we know that? Because we see the integrity of his life all the way through. Because we see that all the way through his life, no matter what evil was happening, he keeps his faith and he's faithful to God. Now, one of, these, one of the things that this whole story does for us is it helps shape our view of evil. And we begin to understand, and to some degree, we can begin at least in part to answer the question, if there is a God, why is there evil in the world? And we've already talked about this some, so I'm not going to belabor that. But, but we, it begins to shape our perspective of the whole concept of evil. And, 
And why does a good God permit evil? The reason a good God, one of the reasons we understand now that a good God permits evil is because he has a plan to accomplish an even greater good that not only counterbalances the, the evil, but actually overwhelms the evil and becomes far more glorious and majestic and wonderful and good than the evil ever was bad. So does that mean that evil is not evil? No, it doesn't, does it? Does it mean that suffering is not suffering? It doesn't. The evil was evil, and that's very clear. Joseph does not mince any words. You meant evil. Okay? And so, one of the things we understand is that evil really is evil, and suffering really is suffering. And as Christians, uh, as Christians, God is not calling us to kind of this Pollyanna view that just kind of says, you know, well, this is all going to turn out good in the end, so it doesn't bother me. Suffering is suffering, and evil is evil. And there were many times in the life of Joseph when he cried out in anguish. But what Joseph never did do, though he cried out in anguish and though he really did suffer and though he really desired to be free of the suffering, the one thing he never stopped doing was he never stopped trusting God and he never determined to take his own revenge. And that's, I think, the perspective we need to have about evil. Evil is evil. It really is wicked. And it really does hurt. And it really is counter to God's perfect will. But ultimately, God will triumph. Ultimately, God will turn it to good. And in the meantime, I am to remain confident that He will do that. And I am to resist the temptation to take his place and take my own revenge. Now, Joseph, now here's something I want you to notice. Joseph says about to his brothers, he says, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, he says, but God meant it for good. What is the good that Joseph saw God intended to do through the evil of his brothers? To save lives. You know, just kind of thinking about the story, it'd be very tempting to think that what Joseph was thinking was, well, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because he was going to eventually elevate me and honor me. But that's not Joseph's perspective, is it? Joseph's perspective was not that the good that God was going to do was his own elevation and his own honoring. He's completely out of the picture. That's not even the issue. The issue to Joseph is that God was going to preserve many people alive. And his own exaltation and the honor and the luxury and the riches that he got was just a means to the end. And I think that's a very important distinction for us to remember. Because if we want to believe like Joseph believed, that God does ultimately turn all evil to good, we must not fall into the trap of thinking we're all going to get the kind of things Joseph got in the deal. Because we remember when we go to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 11, and we go through that glorious chapter of faith and we read about all these people, Abraham and Enoch and 
Abel and all these people, and we go through all these stories and Sarah and and and, uh, and Moses and all these wonderful and how God did all these wonderful. But then it gets towards the end of the chapter and it starts talking about those who by faith were sawn in two. And so we realize that the good that God is going to do through my life may not necessarily, it may mean I'll become a Joseph. <laughs> That'd be kind of cool, you know. But it may mean that I'm sawn in two. But the good will be that whether I become a Joseph or whether I am sawn in two, that through the good that God does in turning evil to good in my life, the lives of many people will be preserved. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Well, and so then we go on in the story and he assures them that they'll be taken. When he's dead, they're still going to be taken care of. So I'm going to be off the scene, but God's going to take care of you. And then he instructs the children of Israel, when you do leave, when you go back to Egypt, Hebrews tells us by faith he said this, when you go back to Egypt, you take my bones with you. And Joseph, with eyes of faith, looked at a distant promise that he did not see in his lifetime. And he said, this is what I want you to do because this is what is going to happen. To Joseph, the exodus, the evidence of the exodus was Joseph's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And Joseph is hoping for this exodus in the biblical sense of hope. And he is, has faith in this ultimate exodus. And so he speaks, Hebrew says, he spoke of the exodus and he directed what they should do with his bones because he did so by faith even though the book of Hebrews tells us all these died in faith without receiving what was promised in order that apart from us they would not be made complete. And so, so here we have Joseph at the end of his life. He comes to the end of his life and he is still in Egypt and he, is, uh, and he dies at 110. He's seen his great, great grandkids and, uh, and so he's had a good life. But he dies... And he is embalmed and he is placed in a coffin in Egypt. And the book of Genesis ends with that prepositional phrase. In Egypt. And it reminds me of another prepositional phrase. In Genesis. What would that be? In the beginning. Those two prepositional phrases are the bookends of the book of Genesis. And we started three years ago, we started with, uh, we started with that prepositional phrase in the beginning and we began to look at Genesis and we started talking about, uh, about the whole book of Genesis and uh, some of the... Uh, some of the uh, primary things that we would be looking for as we were going through the book of Genesis. We talked about, as Mike was pointing out, what a foundational book 
It was. We talked about how it was part of the Pentateuch, this larger series. We talked about how it was written for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And, and, uh, and it was intended to, to shape them and, and to bring them mentally and spiritually from Egypt to Canaan. Not just physically to bring them, but to bring them out of that time in Egypt in their hearts and in their minds and in their worship. To bring them out of that time in Egypt and prepare them for the land of promise. And that's the whole point. That's the initial point, of course, of the Pentateuch. And particularly uh, as we were looking at the book of Genesis. And as we looked at Genesis, we saw that there were, uh, that it was, it actually falls into a fairly neat outline. There are 11 divisions to the book of Genesis. You have, first you have the prelude to the book, which begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and goes to chapter 2, verse 3. And what's what's the prelude all about? It's all about creation, okay? And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, we have what we might think of as the chapters of Genesis, okay? When you, typically when we think of chapters, we think of chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. But really, Genesis is divided into these 10 chapters that are called what? Remember? Taladots or Taladot, okay? I call them Taladots, okay? I don't know Hebrew, so if you're a Hebrew scholar, you'll have to correct my pronunciation. But I call them Taladots because that's easy for me to remember. But we have these ten Taladots. And the word in Hebrew, Taladot, simply means the account of a generation. And so as you're reading through the book of Genesis, ten times you'll come across this expression, this is the account of the generations of so-and-so. Okay? And there are ten of those divisions in Genesis. And they begin in chapter 2, verse 4. And we'll just kind of run through those real quickly here in the next few minutes. But first we have the prelude, kind of the introduction to Genesis. And that's the story of creation. And, uh, and what the story of creation does is it introduces us to the God of the Bible. There's all kinds of ideas in the world about God, aren't there? And all kinds of people have all kinds of ideas about God. But what is significant to us about those first few verses of Genesis from chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 is that we get introduced to the God of the Bible. So the children of Israel in the wilderness as they're coming out of Egypt and they've been exposed to all these other gods and they're, but they've been delivered now through the Red Sea and they've been brought to Sinai and all that sort of thing. Now God is going to say, well, you've got all these weird ideas about God. Let me tell you who I am and what I'm really like. And it starts with that very profound first sentence, in the beginning, God. And everything that exists outside of God, everything spiritual, everything material, time itself, and space itself, all comes into existence in Genesis chapter 1. And I was thinking about that this morning and I was thinking, how cool is our God? Because whenever I want to make something, what do I do? 
I think of things that I already know and I'm already familiar with, right? So if I want to make a house or a piece of furniture or a iPad or, you know, I think of other things that are like that, right? And I just think how I can make it better. And then what do I do? I go get some stuff that already exists. And I put all those things together to make something that's a little bit better than what I already have in my mind. Right? But God is spirit. That's all He is. Okay? There's no time. There's no space. There's no rock or dirt or trees. or There's nothing. There's nothing. It doesn't even exist. It has never existed. And, and this God, who just exists by himself, and that's all there is, thinks up in his glorious mind all this other stuff. And then makes it ex nihilo, out of nothing. So, we don't even get out of Genesis 1-1 and we're already blown away, right? We're already, we've already got a God that is far superior to all the other gods of the world. And we haven't even got out of verse 1. And then we go through this whole remarkable story of creation. And, and as we go quickly through this review of Genesis, there may be things that come to your mind. You may have questions or whatever, or, uh, things I raised. You know, don't hesitate. Uh, to, you know, go back, get on the website, go back and listen to the pertinent uh, messages again, studies again that we did in those various passages. If there are questions come to your mind, because we're going to sail now, folks. <laughs> we're going to move fast. But we have the story of creation, and then we have what many people think of in the first Taladot, which is called the Taladot or the account of the heavens and the earth begins in chapter 2, verse 4, and it goes through chapter 4, verse 26. It's called the account of the heavens and the earth. And at the beginning of that, in chapter 2, we have what many people think of is a second account of creation. But it is not. It's a, it's a totally different issue. Okay? It does tell us again about the creation of man from a different perspective. And it tells about the creation of the Garden of Eden. But it is not a second account of creation. The account of creation is in Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 4, begins the account of the heavens and earth, which is really the story of Adam and Eve and their immediate descendants. And so over the next couple chapters or so, three chapters or so, we get this story about how God created paradise and this was the place where he wanted man to live. He created us as physical beings. We talked about this many times. And he created a physical place for us to live. And it was this glorious, beautiful, wonderful place. And man walked in fellowship with God. And then for some inexplicable and totally illogical reason, man rebelled. And we have the fall. And we have the consequences of the fall where... Where the, where the death and the consequences of the fall from the very moment that Adam and Eve sinned there at the foot of that tree in the Garden of Eden. Evil and death and suffering 
began to radiate out like ripples on a pond. Radiate out from that tree throughout the garden, throughout the world, all the way throughout the cosmos, both in space and in time, until that evil is arrested at the foot of another tree on Golgotha. And, and, and then we begin to see this theme develop in the book of Genesis as God comes down and he deals with Adam and Eve and with the serpent. And, and we begin to see this theme of two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this becomes a theme throughout all the way through the book of Genesis. This idea of two lines, the righteous line and the unrighteous line. Okay? And we get the story of Cain and Abel. And, we, and, and towards the end of that Taladot, we get all the descendants of Cain. It talks about Cain and all his descendants. And, and it kind of all culminates with the story of a guy by the name of Lamech there at the end of chapter 4. And, and how evil this man was. And it's really kind of a summary of what the descendants of the seed of the serpent are like. Okay? And then we pick up the second Taladot, which is called the Taladot or the account of the generations of Adam. It begins in chapter 5, verse 1, and goes through chapter 6, verse 8. And it continues. We've already learned a little bit about the birth of Seth in the previous Taladot. But it picks up the story of Seth and it begins now to follow the righteous line. We followed the unrighteous line of Cain in the previous Taladot. In the second Taladot, we have the righteous line. And, and what's striking here is we have a contrast then between the righteous line and the unrighteous line. And when I say the righteous line, I don't, I don't want to imply that everybody who's born in this line is righteous by faith. But we call it the righteous line because it really is the primary line through which God reveals and displays his grace uh, to the world. And it is also ultimately the line through which the salvation is going to come that God promised in the garden. So we call it the righteous line. And it's contrasted with the unrighteous line. Uh, and, and, and so we have a long genealogy there. And there are three names particularly that stand out, three generations in a row that stand out. The first one is a guy by the name of Enoch. And Scripture tells us that he was pleasing to God, that he walked with God, and he was not for God took him. He did it by faith, Hebrews says. And he had a son. He named his... He was a prophet, Scripture tells us. And he had a son, and he named his son Methuselah. Methuselah, of course, you know, is the man who lived longer than anybody else, 967 years. He died in the year of the flood. But his name, he's named by his father Enoch, the prophet, his name means a dart or a spear. And so it seems like Methuselah really represents the coming of God's judgment. Okay? And then, pardon? 969 years, you're right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, whatever it is, it was up to the flood and you can calculate it. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And then Methuselah had a son and he named his son Lamech. Okay? And Lamech had a son named Comfort or Rest, Noah. And so in Lamech, we see a guy who, when his son is born, has the confidence that somehow the rest from all this curse, he says, is going to come through Noah, which, of course, ultimately it does. And then we pick, that takes us into the third Taladot, which is the Taladot of Noah, the account 
of the generations of Noah. And, and the, the, this account and the next, this Taladot and the next Taladot are both a little different than the others because typically a Taladot is named after the father and the story of the Taladot is really about his descendants. In this case, this Taladot is all about Noah and the flood. So we have the story of the flood and, uh, and we know, we learned that the flood came because of the wickedness, the exceeding wickedness of violence of men. But I think even more significantly, the flood came because of the failure of the righteous line to raise up a righteous seed. That's that whole story, remember, about the, uh, the sons of God went into the daughters of men. And what we learn there is what that's referring to. Is that's referring to... The, the sons of the righteous line are indiscriminately marrying whoever they will and they are beginning to intermarry with the, with the unrighteous line and so the righteous line is being diluted and the peril that the, that the whole human race faces is that the righteous line will become so diluted and then annihilated by all the violence on the world that the hope of redemption will be lost. And that is why the flood is necessary. The flood is necessary to arrest this dilution and pollution of the righteous line and the elimination of the righteous line to arrest that and preserve the righteous line through Noah and his descendants. And so that's why God sends the flood. And so we have the flood in one of the most powerful passages in the story of the flood to me. One of the most powerful verses is when Noah is there on the flood, excuse me, there on the ark, and he's been there for months and months and months and months, and it's just been going on forever. And then it says, God remembered Noah. And we talked about that, and we talked about how when God remembered, when it says God remembered somebody, it doesn't mean God's going, oh man, I forgot about Noah. He's stuck there in the ark. It doesn't mean that. When it says God remembers somebody, it means God's made a covenant, He's made a promise, and it's been a very, very, very long time, and it's looked like God's forgotten. But when it says God remembers, it means God is keeping a long-ago promise. And that's what He's doing for Noah. And we see that again at other times in the story. Uh, and then, of course, we have the Noahic covenant and the institution of human government with the institution of capital punishment. And the whole idea is to arrest this uncontrolled evil that was going before the flood. And then you have the Taladot of Noah's sons, which is the story of Shem, 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 Shem and Japheth. And, uh, and that begins in chapter 10. Excuse me, Noah, the Taladot of Noah, uh, if you're writing these down. Uh, let me give you that as... Chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 9, verse 28. Uh, and then we have his sons, which is chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 9. And the two primary features of that Taladot are the table of nations in chapter 10, where God describes how you get all these different nations, all these different people groups that come from these three men, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And uh, so that's all very interesting. We studied that in some detail. And then you get to the story of the story of Babel in chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11. And so really the, the, the Taladot of Noah's sons really tells us where all these people came from that populate the earth and why they all talk different languages and why they all live in different places in the world. 
And so that's what that Taladot explains to us. And then we come, and here, here's, we have another kind of unusual way uh, here with the Taladot, because we have the Taladot of Noah, then the Taladot of Noah's sons, and then the next Taladot, number five, is the Taladot of Shem, who is one of Noah's sons. So you have the Taladot of Noah's sons, and then you have the Taladot of one of his sons, which is Shem. And that begins in chapter 11, verse 10, and goes through chapter 11, verse 26. So it's about 16 verses long. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and what the author is doing here in the Taladot of Shem is he's once again returned to the story of the righteous line. In the previous Taladot, it was primarily about all the people of the world uh, and particularly the unrighteous line or the seed of the serpent. Okay? <clears throat> and what we learned in that Taladot was that God is concerned and loves them as well. Okay? But in the next Taladot, the Taladot of Shem, we return to the story of the righteous line and we trace the generations from Noah all the way down to Terah, the father of Abraham. Okay? So we are once again following the seed of the woman. And we pick up Taladot 6, which is the second longest Taladot in all of Genesis, and it is the Taladot of Terah. The story of the generations or the account of the generations of Terah begins in 1127 and goes through 2511. And of course, it is primarily the story of Abraham. And so there at the end of chapter 11, we are introduced to Abraham. And at the beginning of chapter 12, we see God's call on the life of Abraham. And we learn that this man, Abraham, this obscure man in this genealogy, is actually receives a covenant from God that says his name will be great. And so we spent something like 14 chapters studying Abraham. And even after that, we can't get away from him. And when we get into Romans, we're going to spend another entire chapter talking about Abraham in chapter 4. Okay? He is a great man. And there's much more to the promises of covenant uh, with Abraham. Covenant promises with Abraham. But he really is the personification of faith. And with Abraham, we begin finally to see the fleshing out of God's plan of redemption. Okay, so all this time up to now, God's been planning it's out there, but we don't see how it's going to work. But finally in Abraham, it starts to get fleshed out when God says to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he really is uh, the personification of faith, and he is the fleshing out of God's plan of redemption. And there are, of course, a number of stories in the story of Abraham uh, that stand out to us. There are the three, uh, there are the, the great uh, covenant promises that God makes, and, and three chapters in particular that stand out on that are chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17, in which God tells, uh, makes his promises to Abraham. Chapter 15, classic chapter, what, what we call the bloody alley, the story of God's covenant where he, where he cut the animals and walked between the animals. Uh, and so we have that story. Uh, we have the wonderful story at the end of the Battle of the Kings, the War of the Kings in chapter 14, where the king of Salem and the king of Sodom are contrasted. The king, the king of the righteous line and the king of the unrighteous line are contrasted. We have the sacrifice of Isaac, remarkable story. We have the story of a bride for Isaac, glorious story, wonderful story. 
Uh, I just love that story. Then we move on to talk about number seven, which is Ishmael in chapter 25. It's just about seven verses long, but toward verses 12 through 18. And uh, once again, this is he's just uh, bringing us up to date on the on the story of the seed of the serpent. Then we have Talat number eight, which is Isaac, that begins in 25:19 and goes through 35:29. And this is really the story of Esau and Jacob, and primarily it's the story of Jacob's life from his birth up until his return to Beersheba after his 20 years of, uh, of uh, sojourning in Peyton Aaron. And uh, so in that, in that story, we see, uh, in that Taladot, we see the whole story of Jacob as he's transformed from a fugitive to a pilgrim. And we see his return ultimately from uh, Peyton Aram. And he comes back and he kind of repeats the steps of Abraham. He goes first to Shechem, then he goes to Bethel, and finally he goes to Beersheba and Mamre. And probably the metaphor for Jacob's life that we see in that Taladot is a man who wrestles with God. And of course, that whole story at Peniel there on the, on the north bank of the river Jabbok, where he actually physically wrestles with God, is a metaphor for, for the life of Jacob. A man who wrestles with God his whole life, he comes out wounded, but he wins. That's the metaphor. And that's the life of Jacob. And then we have chapter 9. We have, or excuse me, Taladot 9, which is the Taladot of Esau, is all of chapter 36 uh, and verse, uh, first verse of 31, so it's uh, 37. So it's 36.1 through 37.1. It's more of God uh, detailing for us following the seed of the serpent, the unrighteous line, what we call the unrighteous line. And then finally, we have the, tal- the last Taladot is the Taladot of Jacob, begins in chapter 37, verse 2, and goes to the end of the book, chapter 50, verse 26. And it's really primarily the story of Joseph and his brothers, chiefly the story of Joseph. And how we begin to see here again how God's redemptive plan begins to take greater, clearer shape. And we begin to understand how God transforms evil and turns it into something gloriously good. And his purpose in doing so is that he might keep many people alive. And so that brings us back to the end of Genesis and it brings us back to the closing verses of our story. And what we see here now is that we began with that prepositional phrase in the beginning and now we're going to end with this prepositional phrase in Egypt. And it's not a very auspicious way to end the story. Because here we have Joseph embalmed in a coffin in Egypt. And it's not how you'd want the glorious story of God's redemption to end. Thankfully, of course, it doesn't end here. It's just getting started. Okay? But it's not the way you'd want it to end. Because what we have now is with Joseph dying here at the end of Genesis in Egypt with all the descendants of Egypt, all the descendants, excuse me, of Jacob, what you have is you have the righteous line, the seed of the woman, is now in Egypt. And if you just turn the page to Exodus, you find that they are just about to enter in to 400 years of enslavement. 
And so the picture we get here at the end of Genesis is the seed of the of seed of the woman is just about to be enslaved to the seed of the serpent. And I go, God, what happened to your promise? You said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But here we are now, and the seed of the woman is to be enslaved by the seed of the serpent. All these died in faith without receiving the promise. But he says, they all welcomed them from afar. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Just before they embalmed him and put him in a coffin, what did he do? He reached out his hands and he welcomed the promise of God. Because he had the irrefutable proof, the irrefutable evidence that this was not the end of the story. What was that irrefutable evidence? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says it was his faith. Now, faith is the substance of the things we hope for, folks. And it is the evidence of the things we cannot see. And so we hear, we have Joseph going into a coffin in Egypt. But he is welcoming from a distance the promises of God. And, and we have to realize in our own lives, folks, that we are not yet in Revelation 22. There's a lot of ways in which we're still in Genesis chapter 50. And some of you may actually feel like you're embalmed in a coffin in Egypt. And the question that comes down to us from all these men and women of faith. How does Hebrews say it? We have around us this great cloud of witnesses. And all these witnesses are asking us, will you embrace the promises of God even though they are still at a distance? Because just as these men and women of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 could not be made complete without you and me. There are lives to be, there are men and women whose lives are to be preserved because of the evil in our lives that God turns to good. And our lives will not be made complete without them. And so like Joseph we speak of an exodus and we speak with faith about our bones being carried there because we have welcomed those promises from a distance and that is the story of Genesis okay well next week uh, Jim will share with you on Money, he says. 
And in a couple weeks, then we'll pick up the story again in the book of Romans this time.